Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 106. It's titled, How Worried Should You Be About the National Debt? One of the listeners to the show is Steve. He's retired. He's 69, lives in Georgia, spends his time volunteering, spending time with his grandchildren, with his children. He's a talented woodworker, and he also sends me feedback on every single episode. He usually listens to money for the rest of us while he walks, and then every once in a while I get an email with just a short line or two impression of each episode. This began with episode one, where he wrote, Your lack of concern with printed money... In episode one, no less, made me doubt your expertise or judgment, but I kept listening and am mostly glad I did. I'm hoping one of your podcasts will cover the national debt and how we're going to pay it off. My guess is by intentional inflation. Just wonderful for those of us who save for our entire lives. Months later, I got another email. This was after listening to episode 91, and he, he wrote... Your nonchalance about the national debt is either deeply insightful or scarily insane. I love that quote, deeply insightful or scarily insane. And, and to be honest, some of the ideas I've shared on the show about what banks do, what money is, about the national debt, and I would admit I have some nonchalance, are a little scary, Hopefully, they're insightful, but we're going to explore it today and, and try to understand where I'm coming from and, and under what conditions should somebody be worried about their particular nation's national debt and what conditions they shouldn't be as worried, but what they should be worried about. One of my favorite economists is Abba B. Lerner. He was born in 1903 in Romania. He emigrated to Great Britain when he was three. He turned to economics after pursuing work as a tailor, a Hebrew teacher, a typesetter, and operating his own printing business. His printing business failed leading up to the Great Depression. So in 1929, Lerner, at the age of 26, enrolled in a night class at the London School of Economics, partly to learn why his business had gone bankrupt. He continued at the London School because he, he liked economics. He studied under the famed economist Frederick Hayek. And in 1977, Lerner emigrated to the United States where he continued studying and writing on economics. In 1943, in an article titled Functional Finance and Federal Debt, Lerner expanded on a radical idea that he recognized many opposed because, quote, they are easily frightened by the fairy tales of terrible consequences. There is a lot of concern on the national debt, and some of these concepts, they're, they're frightening. They really are. The question is, are 
the idea is the government going to inflate their way out of the national debt? Are we going to default? These are potentially terrible consequences. Are they fairy tales or not? Lerner acknowledged this idea where he's going to share, I'm going to share with you, is extremely simple, but its simplicity, simplicity causes the public to, quote, suspect it as too slick. So what is the idea? And here's a quote from the paper. Government fiscal policy, its spending and taxing, its borrowing and repayment of loans, its issue of new money, its withdrawal of new money shall all be undertaken with an eye only to the results of these actions on the economy, not to any established traditional doctrine of what is sound and unsound. End quote. Too often we assume the federal government is like a business or a household with the same budgetary, balance sheet, and solvency constraints as businesses and households. But the major difference between a business and household and the federal government is the federal government has a monopoly on the nation's currency. What is sound and unsound for businesses and households, and for that matter, matter even local and state government, differs for the federal government because those other entities operate with Uncle Sam's money. The federal government plays by different rules. Now, such incredible power comes with a serious responsibility. And what is that responsibility, according to Lerner? Here's his quote. The first financial responsibility of government, since nobody else can undertake the responsibility, is to keep the total rate of spending in the country on goods and services neither greater than or less than the rate at which at current prices would buy all the goods and services that is possible to produce. The total spending is allowed to go above this, there will be inflation. And if it's allowed to go below, there will be unemployment. Continuing, the government can increase total spending by spending more itself or by reducing taxes so the taxpayers have more money left to spend. It can reduce total spending by spending less itself or by raising taxes so that taxpayers have less money to spend. By these means, spending can be kept at the required level where it will be enough to buy the goods and services that can be produced by all who want to work and yet not enough to bring inflation by demanding at current prices more than can be produced. What's he talking about? Businesses produce goods and services based on the anticipation that there will be a market for those goods and services. And most of those goods and services are bought by households and businesses. Some of the goods and services are bought by the government. If the demand for goods and services exceeds the supply available, then capacity is constrained and prices rise and inflation ensues. And so if if the government started spending all kinds of money, running a huge deficit when we have capacity constrained and most of the goods and services are being produced, are being bought by the private sector, then that's what causes inflation and that's a constraint of government. On the other hand, if the, the supply of goods and services exceeds demand, then what happens is businesses start to discount prices in order to drive sales. They lay off workers, and that will increase unemployment. Lerner argues the federal government can help ensure demand meets supply 
through its spending and taxing decisions, keeping both unemployment and inflation at bay. So does that mean the federal government should try to assess demand and supply and centrally plan a response? Very much a top-down economic management? No, that would be an impossible task. Learners focuses on total spending on goods and services within the economy, the vast majority of which are purchased by the private sector. The federal government can help ensure a supply-demand equilibrium by doing two things. It can provide a social safety net for those who are out of work through unemployment benefits, and it can encourage more spending by households and businesses by cutting taxes. In other words, it's still they can help ensure an equilibrium, but do it through working through the private sector, not through top-down management. One of the most important things government officials and citizens can do is recognize the federal government is not a household or business and consequently does not face the same constraints. Most of the time, due to the spending and saving decisions made by the private sector, the federal government will run a budget deficit year in and year out. And each year's budget deficit gets added to the national debt. I talked about in episode 42, all countries are insolvent, why the federal government typically runs a budget deficit. The reality is because the governments always run budget deficits and the national debt keeps growing, the national debt will never be repaid. And why? Because in order to repay the national debt, the federal government would need to run a budget surplus for years. That means the government would have to raise taxes and extract more money from the households and businesses than the government spends. Households and businesses would have less money. That would lead to lower total spending for the entire economy and reduced overall demand for goods and services. Businesses sensing lower demand would lay off workers. Unemployment would rise. That would lead to automated increases in government social safety spending through unemployment benefits and welfare. At the same time, household and business income would fall because the businesses are selling less. The employees, you have unemployment, and so net, the total workforce is paying less in taxes. Businesses are paying less in taxes, so you have lower tax revenue, more expenditures due to the, the unemployment benefits and other social safety net spending, what are known as automatic stabilizers. stabilizers. And then, so this ill-planned federal budget surplus, you can plan it, but it would quickly turn to a deficit, and once again, the national debt would increase. Now, the only time the government should raise taxes and run a budget surplus should never be to pay down the national debt. The only time it should do that is if total demand for goods and services exceeds supply, causing constrained capacity, which would lead to inflation. And that's what Lerner is saying, is stop worrying about whether What the government does is sound or unsound. We're talking about the federal government here. Focus on whether the government's actions, what's its impact on the economy. If If the economy is near its capacity and inflation is at risk, then the, then the central bank should be acting by raising interest rates, 
and the government should be responsible and potentially reduce demand by raising taxes and running a surplus. Now, that's a rare situation. We have been persistently been below capacity at least since the end of the Great Recession. And so the government should be running a budget deficit. We shouldn't be worried about trying to pay off the national debt. One, it can't be done. But two, that's not the role of the government right now. The role is to make sure there's adequate de- demand on the margin. Raising taxes should never be done to fix the federal government's finances in order to make it financially sound. Households and businesses and local and state governments need to be financially sound because they don't control their own currencies. Federal governments who control their own currency should focus on economic growth and controlling inflation, not soundness. But then this raises the question, can't the national debt grow out of control? I mean, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The answer is yes, it is possible for the national debt to get too big. There are times when countries have defaulted on their national debt, but it is usually because they didn't control their own currency. They either were using currency, they they were a foreign country and they were using the dollar, or their currency was tied to some other currency. In other words, it was pegged to some other currency. The other thing is their debt was denominated in a foreign currency. And the government was acting irresponsibly by stoking hyperinflation, by spending well beyond the capacity of the private sector to produce goods and services. When a country issues its own fiat currency, and by fiat currency, we're talking about currency that's not backed by anything, that has no intrinsic value. So when a country issues its own fiat currency and it issues debt, in that currency, then it is nearly impossible for the country to default on its debt as long as the government keeps inflation at bay by spending and taxing responsibly. Now, why is that? Because a country who issues its own fiat currency has the power to print money, including to print money to pay off its debt. Now, that's what Steve's worried about. He's worried about the government printing off money, stoking inflation. But the reality is a country that issues its own fiat currency doesn't even need to issue debt at all. What does it mean for a government to print money? In today's world of mostly electronic commerce, it means changing the numbers, the digits in a recipient's bank account. Money is digits. It can be created at will by banks through their lending activities and by the federal government through its spending in coordination with the central bank. I talked about this in episode 94, how money is created and destroyed. This idea is terrifying. It gets back to Steve's earlier quote. It, it, it's scary that the government can do this. But that is the reality of the situation. And because it is scary, too often we go back to and fall back on the analogy that the federal government is like a household or business. When households and businesses spend, they need to have the money in their bank accounts because they don't control their own currency. The federal government doesn't face the same constraints. And we saw this with quantitative easing. The Federal Reserve 
can create money out of thin air. And they can use it to buy government bonds that the banks held. That's exactly what quantitative easing is. The Federal Reserve created money and out of thin air, and they bought bonds that banks held. Now, that newly created money didn't go anywhere. It just sat there as excess reserves at the central bank. But the point is the Federal Reserve did create money and used it to buy government bonds. There is no reason from a technical standpoint the Federal Reserve couldn't create money and then provide it directly to the federal government, who could then spend it either on goods or services or pay off debt. Think about that. The Federal, the federal Reserve could create money, give it to the federal government. The federal government could then take that money and pay down the national debt. That's why the federal government can't default if the country has its own fiat currency, it has its own central bank, and the debt is denominated in that country's currency. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Adair Turner is a British businessman and academic. He works for the Institute of New Economic Thinking. And late last year, he wrote a paper, The Case for Monetary Finance, an Essentially Political Issue. You can get a copy of this paper, as well as the paper that I mentioned by Abba Lerner at moneyfortherestofus.net. It'll be in the show notes. If you're a member of my Insider's Guide, I already have emailed you these links, as well as a summary article about what I'm talking about today. If you're not a member of my Insider's Guide, you you can get that by signing up at moneyfortherestofus.net, or if you're a U.S.-based listener, you can text the word INSIDER to the number 44 
222. I'll reply back with a text and you'll, you'll be all signed up. So Adair Turner wrote this fascinating paper and it's about monetary finance and he describes what monetary finance is. It is running, federal government, running a fiscal deficit or a higher deficit than would otherwise be the case, which is not financed by the issue of interest-bearing debt. That's how the government typically works, right? The government runs a deficit, then they go out and they borrow money, they issue government bonds, and that gets added to the national debt. He's saying monetary finance is when the government spends money, but it's not financed by interest-bearing debt, but by an increase in the monetary base, i.e. of irredeemable fiat non-interest-bearing monetary liabilities of the government central bank. Exactly what quantitative easing was. The, the new money that was created that was used to buy those government bonds added to the monetary base. Now, Turner gives three ways that this could be accomplished, and it's in his paper. And I'm going to go ahead and and quote. Here's the three ways. The central bank, the first one, the central bank directly credits the government current account held either at the central bank itself or at a commercial bank and records as an asset a non-interest-bearing, non-redeemable, due-from-government receivable. He's talking about accounting. And that's that's essentially what money is. It's, It's accounting. The, the, the central bank gives the money. It just debits the, the government's account that's at the central bank or at a commercial bank. So suddenly the federal government has way more money. And then to offset that, the central bank puts on its balance sheet a receivable, non-interest bearing that never has to be repaid that the, Fed, that the federal government owes the central bank. That's, all that, that's how it could be done. And then the federal government has more money that it could spend. Now, again, what is the constraint of federal government? Not to spend too much to where it strains the capacity of the private sector to produce. That's the constraint. Inflation. The technical ability of the government to get as much money as it wants, that's not a constraint. The other things that can be done, so that was the first thing. The second, the government issues interest-bearing debt, So just like it does today, it issues government bonds, which then the central bank purchases, holds, and perpetually rolls over, buying new government debt whenever the government repays the old debt. And then it returns to the government as profit, the interest income it receives from the government. In this case, the central bank must also credibly commit in advance to this perpetual rollover. That's what he's describing quantitative easing. The government was issuing bonds and that and the, and then the Fed then the the central bank would purchase those bonds. They worked through the commercial banks, but that's essentially what it was. And then the third thing the government could do is it could issue interest bearing debt, which the central bank purchases, which is then converted to a non interest bearing, non redeemable due from government asset. So they, they could give the, the government the money. It could just immediately go on the balance sheet of the central bank as non-interest-bearing. It could have been interest-bearing debt the government issued that the Federal, Res- the Federal Reserve or the central bank purchased in the open market or directly and converted it to non-interest-bearing. But the idea is there will be a perpetual liability that the federal government owns the central bank 
that never gets repaid. In return, there's this newly created money. That is a powerful privilege and responsibility the federal government has. They have the ability to access unlimited money from the Federal Reserve. And because of that, holders of U.S. government debt should not be overly worried about default. They should be more worried about inflation that could result if the government creates too much money at a time when the private sector is already producing goods and services near its capacity to do so. Now, what are the the conditions? You need to have your own fiat currency. You need to have your own central bank that you can control. And the debt needs to be issued in your own currency. Those are the conditions to access this incredible, powerful tool. The European Union member countries don't have that. If you own European Union bonds, debt from Germany, debt from France, debt from Greece, you should be worried about default. Those countries have issued bonds in their own currency. Well, no, in a, in a currency, the euro, which they don't control. They don't have ultimate control. And those governments cannot coordinate with their respective central banks. So essentially print money to meet those debt obligations. So there it it's, it's becomes a concern. Is the government national debt balance sustainable? There's a paper by Richard Kogan, Chad Stone, Bryn Da Silva, and Jan Rajeski. It was published by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. It's called Difference Between Economic Growth Rates and Treasury Interest Rates Significantly Affects Long-Term Budget Outlook. The Center for Budget and Policy Privacy, uh, Budget Policies, no, Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, is a nonpartisan research and policy institute. Their websites say they pursue federal and state policies designed both to reduce poverty and inequality and to restore fiscal responsibility in equitable and effective ways. I don't know if they believe that the government can create as much money as they want, but they did do an interesting study. Let me quote. It says, for decades, analysts have made budget projections that extend 25, 50, or even 75 years into the future. Most generally show that debt as a percent of the economy, or as a percent of GDP, the debt ratio could eventually rise to economically dangerous levels. That's in large part because the government is running primary deficits, budget deficits, and these primary deficits are projected to continue at least through 2040 because revenues will not grow fast enough to offset the rise in baby boomer health and retirement costs. So they're they're talking about the U.S. government here. And and we just saw that this is not an issue for the government because technically it can create the money to meet those needs. The issue is inflation. And the issue is the political willpower to create that money. If the government, if the Congress decides they want to default because of the debt ceiling, they definitely can do so. They don't have to do so, but politically, they can choose to do so. Let me continue with this quote. It says that the main reason why last May the Center on Budget projected that debt would rise at the share economy through 2040. This is, a, a, I guess, the same, the same group. 
But then they go on to say, another reason why these projections show debt rising to potentially dangerous levels is that they assume interest rates will exceed economic growth rates. If that occurs, the debt ratio will rise even when the primary deficit is zero because the borrowing needed to finance interest payments will rise as a percent of the economy. So if you get a situation where interest rates, like we saw in Greece, were, were higher than the growth of the economy on a nominal basis, nominal interest rates, then your debt can continue to explode as a percent of your economy, and then that will lead to default. But what's interesting is U.S. data, they looked at it for 223 years, going back to 1792, and find that on average, economic growth has exceeded interest rates, helping to shrink the burden of existing debt. Now, I, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think the market, hopefully the market recognizes the government, the federal government, the U.S. federal government, can't default. And as a result, and the, resu- and the reality is the Federal Reserve and the government can control the interest rates they pay on the national debt because they control their own currency. They have their own fiat currency, and the debt is denominated in the U.S. dollars. But if you go to Europe, where you have Greece, where interest rates have zoomed because there is a potential for default because they don't control their own currency and they can't coordinate with the central bank to print money to pay off debt. A few weeks ago, I had an email from Andreas who had additional questions on the national debt. And he summarized my views. He said, you see the government's endless borrowing capacity as a given because you assume in the end the central bank will step in and fund the government. Otherwise, private lenders will also deem some amount to be the maximum borrowing limit for a government, just like for private households. But then he asks, even if the central bank funded all the budget deficits, just in the way I described in this episode, don't you think at some point people in other countries will start to get worried about lending to this country their wealth? And when too many people get worried and try to cash in, the currency will devalue strongly and lenders will lose a lot of their wealth. So what he's saying is, will there come a point? First off, there's a a large percent of government debt that's held by foreign holders, and this is because the U.S. runs a trade deficit. We're running where we have the U.S. has bought, U.S. households and businesses have bought goods and services from other countries, and then those foreign businesses and the central banks had a bunch of dollars, which they have then bought and invested in the U.S. and U.S. government debt. If those investors get spooked, China, and start selling, even in that case, the Federal Reserve could step in and buy those bonds. Now, if, if, if those sellers decide that they want to get out of the dollar, that definitely could weaken the dollar. But again, the power of a country that has their own fiat currency, the Federal Reserve could step in and defend the dollar. And the question is, why would people be so worried about the potential default? It could happen. But again, it's the countries that have an independent central bank and a fiat currency that ultimately have the the ability to control these things. What they can't control is inflation. Well, they can control that, but that's the risk. It's It's the inflation. It's producing too much money at a time where capacity isn't there. 
The final thing, though, as I've thought about these, and I'm going to go just a little bit over, is just this idea of helicopter money. This was developed by Milton Freeman back in 1969. It was a thought experiment, and it's being discussed a lot today. And it's the idea that, well, because the federal government that has their own fiat currency can access as much money as they want, and they could spend it, they could just give it to citizens for them to spend in an era if there's excess capacity in order to increase demand. Yeah, they could work that way. It would be an interesting experiment. And I ran this by LaPrille. And, and her view was, yeah, but that wouldn't be really fair because it, people would be getting money for nothing. And then I started to think about what I talked about in episode 72. Will a robot take over your job? What if the private sector got so efficient at producing goods and services that nobody, that there was a, a huge amount of unemployment? Because we already had what we, we need in terms of goods and services, and yet they could produce with little, very little effort with robots. In that case, the government could use these tools to access money, and they could actually hire workers. They could provide a job guarantee to workers to do things that the private sector isn't producing because there isn't an economic incentive. Beautifying parks. They could hire people to visit the elderly in nursing homes. Just things, just niceties of life. There's all kinds of potential flexibility when you have a fiat currency. And do the ideas sound insane? A little bit. But they're technically feasible but governments still have constraints. They, government leaders have to be responsible stewards of this responsibility, not to create too much money during a time when, in an era where the economy is running at full capacity. That's not where we are now, and that's why you're seeing some of these discussions on helicopter money and other concepts. We'll see it, how it turns out. But the point is the government, the federal government, the U.S. US government is not going to default on their debt unless politicians choose to do so. Technically, they don't have to as well as Japan is in the same situation. The U.K. has monetary sovereignty. Countries that don't are those that have outsourced their currency either to a central authority such as the European Union or they're, they're using, there's some countries that use the dollar as their currency or they're, they're specifically paid to the dollar. Having said on that, in my personal portfolio, which I show at the holdings and my allocation weights on the money for the rest of us hub, I don't have many U.S. government bonds nor many developed markets bonds because the interest rates are too low. If you would like to get a little more help with your overall asset allocation and your portfolio, you can become a member of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. You can look at how I invest. You can look at model portfolios to see how you can invest for more conservative investors, modern investor, more aggressive investor, all kinds of education and help, including understanding how fixed income works, as well as equity and other asset classes. You can get information on that at the money for the rest of us hub.com. 
You get show notes for this episode, as I mentioned, at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's where you can sign up for my insider's guide. And everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. You might have noticed this episode a little bit more of an echo than other episodes. We moved out to the farm. I'm still trying to get my studio set up so that the sound quality is there. That's why you're here in this episode. Have a great week.